Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Daily with Tom and Dave. Although I shouldn't really need to tell people that they're if they're logged if they're watching, they should know what they're watching. But it's like a it's like a well. I mean, someone shows up at your house, you say, "Welcome, hey, welcome to, to Daily with Tom my and house Dave. that you're in." You exactly. Know. Yes. How are you, buddy? Well, welcome, welcome. I'm well. I'm well. It's getting very wintry here. Yeah, I'm baby. Like, yeah. Holidays. Yeah. Woohoo! Yeah. yeah, I'll be well. I'll be flying out to L.A. in uh when, when tomorrow. I'll be flying out to L.A. We're tomorrow. ready to see you. I'll see you. Yeah. Yes. Looking forward to it. Even Christmas Eve, potentially. We'll see. Yeah. Yes. I don't know what's going on, but uh, love to have you. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm looking forward to, uh, to today. Today is awesome. Yes. I was all like, oh my gosh. I was like, got all these questions written down. We got a fantastic, fantastic guest to close out 2023. We're doing it in style. This is our sort of last podcast of the of the year, I guess. And um, so, without further ado, uh, Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich uh, served as one of the nation's first female strike fighter aviators as an FA eighteen pilot from two thousand one to two thousand and twenty one. She flew in Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. She has since taught leadership ethics and critical thinking at the George Washington University, uh, U.S. Naval Academy, and now serves on the faculty of the University of Colorado School of Engineering in Boulder. Alex is an advocate for Legacy Flight Academy, a foundation that promotes diversity in aviation and wings for VAL, supporting women in aviation. Alex is also currently part of the Aircrew Leadership Council for Americans for Safe Aerospace, and we're thrilled to have her with us today, she uh, was also a witness of one of probably the most famous uh, yeah, UAP prob- cases in our history. One of the most important uh, yes. uh, incidents. Our modern in, uh, day Roswell. And uh, hi, Alex. Hi. Hi, hi from Boulder. Hi. Hello. Good to see Hello. you again. Good to see you. Hey, Dave. Hi, yeah. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for your service. This is great. Been really yeah. looking forward to this conversation. And um, and so, you know, look, so many cool aspects of the story. I mean, I'll, I'll want, you know, we want to talk about Tic Tac and all that, but I'm just, your, your journey is so interesting. I'm just curious, like, who are your, 
who were your heroes growing up? Oh, um, wow. So when mm-hmm. I was growing up, I was really into math and science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, I was very fortunate to go to a school uh, in Chicago, the Illinois Math and Science Academy. And so our heroes were the founders, Leon Letterman, Nobel yeah. uh, physicist, and Carl Sagan, and uh, you know these folks who had big dreams and and sort of wild ideas about what might be possible and out there, but also brought the receipts. You know, right. they they made sure that it was grounded in in data and evidence and and tangible. Uh, Science. Science. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When So when you're at that school, are you thinking, I want to apply this sort of engineering or this science to being a pilot? Or were you still kind of exploring? Like, how, yeah. how did that come? How did that become something, a dream of yours? I mean, yeah, most not mathematicians at all. do become uh, <laughs> fighter pilots, I believe. Yeah. Right? Really? Statistically? I, I, I think know. so. Yeah. Statistically, yeah. I definitely yeah. wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, you can you can have any degree and be a fighter pilot. Uh, yeah. I flew with folks who were geography majors. Yeah. No offense to the geography majors. But <laughs> no, ge- I mean I assume yeah. that's a component, right? I mean it's good. Yeah, I guess know, know where you are, right? Science. Yeah. Well, I'm a high school dropout, so I'm not going to slam geography majors. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Well, yeah. When, no, when, I I had I had zero interest in actually applying uh, the the math and science foundation. Uh, I had a college counselor. Uh, in the latter years of high school who said, you need to declare a major and you need to have a, a have to have a plan. You have to, uh, and that's what it sounded like when he was talking to me. It was this very like thunderous, <laughs> yeah. ominous voice. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, you got to get it all, get your, get your shit together, Alex. <laughs> you know, yeah. he didn't say that, but he, he did not so many words. And, um, we had these tests, we had these assessments to figure out what we would be well suited to do. We took personality tests, we took these career, you know, you should be a, a park ranger or you should be a surgeon. And um, my test came back all over the place, you know, they, you should be a surgeon in the park kind of thing. <laughs> and sure. so, yeah. And so he said, look, where do you see yourself? when you're 40, look back, what do you want to have accomplished? Where do you want to be? And I thought, hmm, okay, this is, this is an interesting thought experiment. Uh, all the 40 year olds I know are going through a midlife crisis. They're on their second career, they're getting divorced. And he said, no, 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 <laughs> that's not, that's yeah. not what I had in What do I have to choose mind. from? Yeah. And, um, and so I said, no, this is actually really helpful. Thank you. Mr. Hernandez, I said, um, this this tells me that I need to have my midlife crisis up front, that I need to get it out of the way, and then I can settle down and think about career and family and all of that. So you bought a Corvette. I, I <laughs> well, I, 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 on my forms, right, where it said, what do you want to major in and, and what do you want to do with your life? I said, I either want to be a rock star or a fighter pilot, and I'm tone deaf, so I couldn't be a rock star. <laughs> And uh, and so one thing led to another, and I found myself in the strike fighter pipeline. Yeah, and because yeah, because you didn't just decide to be a pilot; you decided yeah. to become a fighter pilot. Yeah, did you? I mean, um, there's got to be a moment where you're like, 
oh, like shit, this is really happening. I mean, I'm really doing this. And that, and you're also you're also enlisting in the military to become that. <laughs> right, right. Well, for for a hot minute, I thought maybe I would go to the military academies. First, I thought I would go to the Air Force because I naively thought if you want to fly, you go into the Air Force. But actually, if you want to fly, you go into the Navy because mm -hmm. the Navy has more flight opportunities. But then, um, yeah, it was all about me. It was about my selfish adventure. It was about you know scratching my own itch. And you, can, you had to get a degree. You had to get a four-year degree. So I went through ROTC in order to graduate in commission. And uh, I, I graduated in May of 2001, went off to flight school, ground school. And then I had my first flight in the aircraft on 9-11. So... Walk us know, through that day. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a nightmare. As it was, you know, I think for the world, it was a, a paradigm shift, and I realized it's not about me and my selfish adventure. And I've taken an oath. Uh, you know, I am a military officer. What the hell does that mean? And, and how do I do this? And how do I contribute in a meaningful way? So, um, yeah, you know, I, I've had an adventure. Certainly, uh, traveled around the world several times, and. Saw a UFO along the way, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so you know it, it. When I advise my students, uh, I, I always tell them, you know, you you think you have a plan, you think you want something or you know something, and the universe will have its way with you, and uh, you know you can just try to make the best of it. Did you say your first flight was nine? So it was like the first time you're in the. September of 2001. Yeah. Is you're you're so you're piloting for the first time that day. Yeah, so we, yeah, we didn't we didn't get very far obviously. Everything was grounded. Um, Turned around, right. Situation of all. Yeah. But but then, you know, and the base that I was uh going through this flight training was in Texas. We didn't have security around the perimeter. Uh it used to be that we would just drive in every morning. We didn't have to stop at a checkpoint at the sentry and show an ID or have our vehicle searched. And so there was a, a delay. All of our training stopped for a few weeks while they literally physically went around and, and secured the, the base. And we were on hold. And, and then when we came back, it was a totally different mindset. You know, we had this sense of urgency because we were catching up. And then also this bigger, um, again, this, this paradigm shift of Mm -hmm. We are going to go into harm's way, and we are going to go and, and um, I don't want to say retaliate, but we are going to go deal with this new situation yeah. Yeah. Uh, of and national Were you, de were you national deployed security. overseas uh, after 9-11? Right. So um, the, the flight training, that, that was the very beginning. Uh, when 9-11 happened. And so I had to go through primary where we learned to just the basics, the basic maneuvers, the basic aerodynamics. Uh, and, and for me, that was in the T-34 Charlie Turbo Mentor, just a little single, like, kind of like a little Cessna or Piper that you would see at a, an airfield. And then I went through the T-45 pipeline. So T-45 Alpha Gossocks, uh, those are a, a jet aircraft. And then into the F-18 replacement squadron. So by the time I got through that whole, uh, you know, several phases of, of that 
pipeline, it was the summer of 2004 uh, when I joined my fleet squadron, the VFA-41 Black Aces. Yeah. And then something else happened uh, in 2004. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, yeah, I can't. I don't the, recall. The kind of added. Was there, there was like an election or something, or was it a? No, I know what it was. Earthquake? You saw you 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 and uh, this other fella, Fra David Fravor. Uh, mm -hmm. You encountered a forty foot uh, long tic tac. Oh, oh, that yes, yeah, that that <laughs> seemed to be un untethered from reality in front of you. Right uh, now, that so this is like. So and and this when is this all happening at once. So yeah. are you? But you're and deployed. You're but you deployment right at this point. No. So I just joined the squadron. Yeah. Uh, I actually joined the squadron as they were uh, conducting a large force exercise in Alaska, uh -huh. uh, and so I we went up to Alaska and we flew around Denali and um, conducted the exercises up there, and then when we came back to the, well, I guess I was about to say back to the states, but Alaska is a state. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, the I mean, it, allegedly, yes, it, yes, it should be a province, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, but we came home. Uh, then we were pre preparing to deploy. So our pre-deployment workups uh, include conducting these exercises and, and training from our own jet base, which in, uh, on the West Coast is in Lemoore, California, which is not beach and sand, California. It's middle of nowhere in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, which is good for flying because people don't complain about the noise and there's access to plenty of ranges and open space to do our, our maneuvers and, and practice on our, um, you know, these target ranges where we can do uh, drop, drop ordnance and not bother anybody. But so then the aircraft carriers that we deploy on, that we actually go out and do these um, these around-the-world uh, missions. Uh, at the time, our carrier was based out of San Diego. And so so we come in together, we, we converge, and we conduct these exercises. And so that's what was happening in November of 2004. It was a, a pre-deployment workup cycle uh, where we had gone down to stay on the ship for uh, several weeks and then integrate our operations, exercise our systems, our hardware, and, and practice our maneuvers off the coast of, of Southern California. I do have to ask a question. How scary is it to land on an aircraft carrier? I mean, how is that? Is that as advertised, as terrifying as it seems, or? Pretty much. It's... Um... <laughs> what's, your, what's your first <laughs> landing like on an aircraft? I mean, do you have to loop yeah. around a few times? <clears throat> So I, I actually don't remember my very first air, uh, carrier landing, and it was on the East Coast off of uh, Florida in the T-45, in the Goshawk. And I should say that, you know, the reason that it takes us a while to get through flight school is because it's very systematic. It's very methodical. Everything has a checklist. Everything has a, um, a, a curriculum. We, we have ground school courses, we have simulators where you sit there and you touch okay. the buttons and you practice the sure. flow and you you practice the hand-eye coordination and look at the sight pictures before you're even in an aircraft. And then when you're in the aircraft, uh, you know, you have a, a flight instructor with you and you watch one, you do, you know, you do one, you do another one, you do it again and again. And we have 
at the airfield, the Fresnel lens, these um, this array of lights and mirrors that replicate the the aircraft carrier's system. That it, it's what you use to come in on glide slope. You want to be on glide slope, and you want to be on airspeed. And so there's this, you can imagine this, if the ship is right here, there's this sort of cone coming back out. And so you come around in your aircraft and you get into that cone and then it, it narrows down. You need to keep on the numbers. And so you practice that a lot at the field before you go to the boat. Mm -hmm. And it's still still kind of tasty. yeah it's still yeah. building where you're still yeah. going like oh shit i still yes. have to actually do this yeah so my my first time off the coast of florida um we had an instructor lead us out you know like little little baby birds on the wing uh, all in formation and we went out and he said over the radio you know there it is at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock low and and i look out and i all i saw was water and I, I couldn't see because the ship was so small at the altitude we were at, and we weren't that high. But I remember looking at it and thinking, well, I tried. <laughs> you know, I made it this far. Yeah, I'm up here. Uh, as well. Yeah. How long yeah. can I yeah. stay up here? Yeah. You know, well, gave it, gave it a shot. Um, and then, you know, we spiraled down and there's a whole, um, you know, again, pre-brief practice maneuver to get down to the altitude where you're sort of in this pattern. Um, and anybody who's flown around a, an airfield understands the pattern, um, you know, the site picture and, and that there's set airspeeds and configurations. And so once I got down into that mode um, and I had my tapes turned on to record it. And so I'm, I'm chatting and I'm talking to myself, uh, you know, saying, hi, mom, hi. <laughs> uh, you know, and then there's that moment where I, I finally see the ship and I go, well, well, no. Nope. Well, we made it this far. Okay. Well, good try. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's okay mm -hmm. if, if we don't make it any further. Um, and then it goes silent. And so that's where I think that I went from my sort of prefrontal cortex back to the, the limbic brain and just went off of muscle memory because um, I land, you know, the arresting cable sort of stretches out and then I start to taxi around and, and follow the direction of the folks on the deck. And then I start talking again and I go, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> this is exciting. And, Holy shit, that yeah. just happened. Yeah. Um, but when I watched the tape later, you know, I was sharing it with my family at the holidays or something. I said, you know, what happened? Did, did you lose the, did the audio cut out? And I said, no, I just must have stopped talking because that was... Over, yeah. overwhelmed you were in the zone yeah you were yeah yeah in the survival yeah. zone and a training yeah. zone i was gonna say That's and it, when you're when you're actually landing on the air wild. it's a little more unpredictable than landing on a simulation on land isn't it there's there's because the air it, it doesn't it, is. it isn't stationary yeah things gotta be Apparently, i mean right? moving right and and in that initial right when we're students uh, the conditions have to be very calm sea state and the weather has to be uh, really good. Uh, but then when you get into the fleet and you um, have more experience and more confidence, um, then we really push the envelope in terms of minimums of, of cloud layers and, and maximums of uh, pitching deck, you know, this sort of mm -hmm. Bronco. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. so besides the Fresnel lens, this, this light and mirror 
contraption that we reference with our eyes to keep us in that in that right space that we're supposed to be in. There's also a set of um, individuals, they're called LSOs, landing signal officers, on the deck. And I don't know, maybe you've seen the, um, what's the spoof of Top Gun? The Oh, uh, is it Hot Shots? Hot Shots, yes. Hot, yes. How, how do you say hot shots? Hot shots. <laughs> hot shots. Yes. I don't know. Yes. Uh, you know, where the guys are, they have the glasses and they, yeah, and they've got mm. the paddles and they're waving and stuff. So those folks are, are their eyes are calibrated uh, after watching so many folks come in. And so they help us. Uh, they're, they're on the radio talking and, and letting us know if it's. <laughs> they're saying, out. yeah, this ain't going to work out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Bored. Yeah. Oh, or man, just forget it. <laughs> yeah. Just regret mm-hmm. all of your life decisions. Turn around. Exactly. This was all for naught. <laughs> was your family like when you said, I'm going to be a Navy fighter pilot? Was that like, um, oh, yeah, that sounds like Alex, of course, makes perfect sense. Or was it, are you fucking, are you crazy? Like what, what was, was there, or there's a mix of opinions on that? Yeah. Um, no, they were supportive. Uh, they, I don't think they really understood uh, what I was getting into. And it, it wasn't like I just was, you know, graduated and was suddenly a fighter pilot. There were several, it was a, right. um, you know, slow, slow drip disclosure, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, at first I was going to flight school and, you know, I could have flown helicopters. I could have flown, you know, cargo transport. And, um, and, and so it, it, it took a while to evolve. And, and again, this sort of nine eleven. um, yeah, that changes in the, in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sort of changed everybody, uh, everybody's mindset. You have an ability to do something like that's that's what's sort of interesting. Like, do you know? I mean, I don't know. It's just there was so much helplessness, so much, so many, so much of a feeling of helplessness, and and I don't know. Was that what was that like to know you could do something about it in some ways? If you know what I mean, respond. You could react to it in a meaningful way. Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't think at the time I was really thinking about that. Um, I was really uh, busy learning these systems, learning these maneuvers, uh, you know, was relatively isolated. Um, Mm -hmm. These these locations where we have our flight schools and our flight training, uh, where we go on detachments to practice, they're in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And they... you're sort and, of in these workups and the training, like the procedures you go through, like how much time is spent preparing you for uh, UFO encounters? None. Not, none. Zero. Well, that seems yeah. that seems like an awfully big uh, oversight, considering. No, we we train like we fight, so that we can fight like we train. We don't like surprises. We want everything to be muscle memory. We want uh, when things are overwhelming that we can fall back on our checklists and fall back on our our training. So, uh, you know, we were preparing for air-to-air and air-to-ground missions. And uh, we we set up those scenarios. We set up the the target ranges. We set up our our briefs and, and everything so that it's these, you know, these expected uh, normal scenarios. And and some of those are quite terrifying. Some of those are, um, 
it's hard to wrap your, your head around, you know, if, if I am doing this, then things have gone terribly wrong right. in the world. Mm -hmm. And so there really wasn't um, either space in the curriculum or appetite to inject uh, yeah. a, a UFO protocol. So you'd be looking at scenarios including up to like a nuclear engagement, I'm guessing. Right. Which yeah. is, yeah, which is uh, something I think I'll, most of us uh, try to avoid thinking about at all. Um, right. As opposed to thinking about, well, if a nuclear war breaks out, what what is my responsibility and what do I have to do? So right. uh, that's a pretty huge thing to... It's incredible to, to even have to contemplate, yeah. And so, yeah, so in... in in the throes, uh, in, uh, this is still, I guess, this is earlier in your early in your career as a as a fighter pilot, and then this sort of weird um, event gets thrown at you. That, that go on. No, I was just going to say. I mean, there's look. There's there's going to be a portion of our audience that is that has heard this story. There's but but also there's a big big portion of our audience that that haven't heard this story. The I am just like if you can take us through that day, um, and uh, you've and how, how do you? When did you meet David Fravor? Is that or is it around the same time, or have you guys been working together for a long time at this point? Or so he was. He was the executive officer, turning over to be the commanding officer of the VFA forty one Strike Fighter Squadron when I checked in that summer of two thousand four, and so by November. November 14th, 2004, which is the date of the event that we're um, talking about here, he was the commanding officer of the squadron and one of the most senior aircrew, if not the most senior pilot in the entire air wing. So an air wing consists of multiple squadrons. So you have your Hornet squadrons, you have your helicopter squadrons, you have your uh, Prowler at the time, which is the now the Growler, so your electronic attack uh, squadron. And so you have multiple groups of officers and enlisted maintainers who ha are responsible for you know, their batch of, of aircraft. And then all of that is sitting on an aircraft carrier that has you know up to 3,000 people taking care of all of the, uh, you know, from their radars and sensors and, and weapons to, um, you know, care and feeding of all of these people, uh, making sure that, um, you know, we have drinking water and we have uh, supply and logistics, food and fuel and, and everything in between. So it is really uh, this magnificent orchestra of, of people and logistics and so, you know, David Fravor is the commanding officer of one squadron among this this entire, um, you know, the carrier operations, and then the carrier is within the carrier strike group, several other ships. So if you've ever played Battleship. I have. The, I, yes. As yeah. close as I've gotten to combat, yeah. yes, I have played Battleship. So yeah. the carrier is that big piece, and then you have probably a submarine and a cruiser and a destroyer and, and the other bits. So... Um, you can imagine this is a sort of a game of battleship. Yeah, which I find very stressful. Just, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, just that. And game we have itself. to stay on the grids, actually. I didn't know if you knew that we have to. Well, yeah, you got to line up, right? Like I've got, you know. Yeah, we're not allowed that, to go diagonally. 
Oh, I quietly move my pieces around. Yeah, that's cheating, Dave. It's not. Oh, no, I didn't know. That's messed up. That's why I, that's why I don't play with you. Yeah, <laughs> and so so you're on you're you're playing this giant this giant version of Battleship, <laughs> the real version. Yes. So 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 here we, we are. A, you're on a nice training mission. Uh, yeah, it's 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 hey, let's go out and practice. Uh, we don't have any live ordinance. We're off the coast of San Diego, so we want to be fierce but not reckless. And we launch, uh, you know, late morning, clear skies, calm waters, and we are expecting to go out and and scrimmage against uh, another squadron. So we have a pre-briefed working area, some coordinates that we have said, you know, this is our piece of the sky to deconflict from other people mm -hmm. uh, working in this military operating area. MOA is what we call it. And, and we're and, not and expecting any. Yeah. And it's just you and you and you're, you're flying your, your jet and David Fravers flying here. So it's just the two of you out on this maneuver. So we each have a weapon systems officer yeah. on board. And so two aircraft, four people. Mm-hmm. Four sets of eyes, four brains, and um, and then there are other aircraft from our carrier strike group in in the vicinity. But we're not expecting commercial airliners. We're not expecting any other traffic uh, to mm -hmm. be coming through our space. Yeah, it's restricted airspace that you're in. Exactly, mm -hmm. and so uh, we launch, and we're in our administrative phase of flight. So this is when we. Uh, you know, we've just taken off. We make sure that everything's working on our aircraft. Uh, you know, we're making sure that we, um, our comms are working, our radios are good. Uh, this is when we have a drink, take a snack, <laughs> do mm -hmm. all of that before we get into our tactical phase a of flight. A soft drink. Yeah, you're eating lunch up there in the in the plane? Pop, just <laughs> pop a little soda. And... Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but we, we carry... Um, you know, camelbacks or, or things gotcha. like that. And so if you yeah. need water and hydration. Yeah. And some pemmican. I don't know what that is. What is that? It's, it's a Native uh, American form of a, of a dried meat. So it's jerky. Does that come with every jet? It's jerky. Yeah, it's, <laughs> okay, it's, jerky. Uh, yeah, it's right. jerky. We all know it is jerky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I call it a meat stick. Yes. Meat stick. That sounds it. rude. Um... But uh, so you're so you're there. You're having you're having your sip of water, and uh, your yeah. things are so things are still normal at this point. Uh, things are normal. Things are are boring, really. Mm -hmm. It's it's yeah. you know day day in the office, and um, and then the air traffic controller for our our, our military exercise. So they're on another ship, but they're part of our carrier strike group. Uh, they come up and they say you know, hey, we're, we're going to give you vectors to this contact. And there's a bit of pushback because we say, no, that's not where we're going. We briefed we were going over here. And, um, you know, they say, we need you to check this out. It's a real-world contact. And so that's the point where we got excited and said, oh, okay, post 9-11, uh, mm, we're off the yeah. coast of California and and – we should all, you know, the, the hair on the back of our necks should stand up. And again, I'm the most junior person in the flight um, and and still learning, still learning everything and, and feeling a bit overwhelmed and, by it all. And so I, 
asked the more senior weapon systems officer in my backseat, I said, what, what do you think is going on? And he said, I don't know, maybe it's um, drug runners coming up the coast. You know, like private planes, right? It's going into airspace that aren't, you know, maybe. Yeah, they're, they're trying to evade our, our radars and sneak up with some contraband or, or something like that. And so I said, Ooh, you know, that's exciting. That is real world. Um, but, you know, what are we going to do about it? We can intercept them, but we don't have any weapons on board. Weapon. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, would we be cleared to engage them anyway? Or are we just going to, you know, give them very stern looks? Scare them away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. The, <laughs> hey. I mean, that would, that'd be enough for me. Um, but right. yeah, probably not drug runners. It's still buzz them pretty alarmingly, I imagine. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we could, we could nudge them um, and, and strongly suggestive um, wing flashes to get them to try to maybe land at Brownfield. So, which is parallel runway to Tijuana International, by the way, which I almost tried to land on once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought I was going into Brown and I was lined Quick up Quick trip to Tijuana. TJ, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so... As this as this radar picture is evolving and and the tracks are coming uh, towards a merge plot, which is where the you know the little dots on their radar screen are, are becoming in in uh, distinguishable, we start to look outside and we try to pick up a visual tally. And 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 this is where you know sort of the commotion begins of, of folks uh, shouting on the radio. Between oops, between our two um, aircraft and and the four people, so we have two radio channels. One that we use to talk up and out, so talking to those air traffic controllers and people outside of our flight, and then a radio that we talk in. Uh, it's our tactical channel, so between the two aircraft, and then in each aircraft you have the ICS or the intercom between the front seat and the back seat. So there's multiple conversations going on at the same time. And all of them are getting excited as um, there's a visual contact or, or a tally of this this water disturbance, um, which I don't know whether it's related to the UFO that we saw or not. But if it hadn't been for the water disturbance, I don't know that I would have picked up a tally because it acted as a sort of funneling feature um, or a, an anchor point for me to get a visual on the, the white water and then see this tic-tac flying above it. So we call it a tic-tac because that's what it looked like. It looked like uh, the little white breath mints. Uh, Dave, do they have those in Canada? They do, uh, but they're 40% smaller. Um, Yeah, so the value isn't as good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Smaller tic-tac. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. He distracted us. No, I'm still trying to think about like how the little the package. Yeah, I know. Work. It's like it's, it's completely <laughs> round. Yeah. I guess I don't know. Yeah, everything's big. Everything's bigger in America. That's just one of the things we live with as Canadians. Everything's That's bigger and brighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tr- actually on our money. We try in Latin. And, yeah. So you're so you're seeing this. Uh, Wait, can I ask about? Yeah, can I ask about the white water though? Because. Mm-hmm. You asking me? It does Alex? seem that does seem coincidental. I'm going to ask Alex, Dave, okay, um, All right. if you don't mind. She's no, our fine. you know our guest today. Right. Um, I I have always been curious about. I mean, it does seem coincidental that 
that was occurring around the appearance of the Tic Tac, I suppose. I mean, did you, in retrospect or in the moment, attribute it at all to perhaps the movement of the Tic Tac creating some effect? Or did you believe or detect that there might be something under the water or see anything that might be under the water that was making that uh, emotion? So in the moment, I had no... I had no idea what was causing the, the white water, and I had no sense of what the Tic Tac was. Mm-hmm. Um, when we came back to the ship and we were debriefing Intel and trying to say, well, what could it have been, right? Let's brainstorm some theories and, and some alternative theories. Um, one of the theories was that we might have seen a submarine launching something and that it was, you know, going under or or... Um, you know, that that's what was happening there. I have since been reassured that there was no submarine in the area and, and it wouldn't make sense that there would be Mm. a live fire or a launch or a test of anything. Sure. And the disturbance was large, right? It was like, I've heard described as the size of a 777 jet or. Yeah. So for, for, for like a microsecond, I thought I went from being excited that we were going to intercept some drug runners to thinking, oh no, whatever we were after has has crashed and is sinking, and now we are, uh, you know, on scene search and rescue. Mm-hmm. And so my heart sank a bit, just thinking, you know, man, that's there could be souls on board. And then the tic tac entered and then I was like, whoa, what? You know, so it was kind of an emotional roller coaster from being excited to being. Yeah. It's a lot going on in a very short span of time. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, to, you know, sort of later, uh, in the debrief being angry that there might've been a potential blue on blue situation to them being reassured that it wasn't, you know, so, so all sorts of um, blue on blue. What's that? It might've been a submarine testing, uh, uh, Right, you know, a missile fire or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, Got it. And that we could have been sort of um, vectored yeah. into that into that test range, but it wasn't. It wasn't a yeah. test range. And, and it and, flies past. Um, excuse. Now I'm hitting my mic. Um, it flies past, and you you guys follow, or it comes back to you, or what's the the? Yeah. So so Dave Fravor, the commanding officer. Uh, and and the lead in this flight, so he was he was senior ranking and also the more senior aviator, uh, and in the position in the flight um, to engage, he calls that he's in to circle that he's engaged, and um, I stay in high cover. So that just means like, hey, I'm <laughs> gonna hang out gotcha, up here because yeah. I don't know what's going on and I'm not really sure what to do. So um, you know, he he has this uh, strange engagement with it and it's um, you know moving in a way that doesn't follow what we would expect uh, and and even though I was relatively new to the the fleet I had flown enough and seen enough of um, similar and dissimilar aircraft so similar being other uh, you know, hornets and and blue air uh, or things that are in our inventory mm-hmm. and then dissimilar would be, you know, red air and, and things that we would expect to be coming from other, other uh, adversaries. 
And and we study these, you know, we study the flight envelopes. We uh, want to be able to optimize our performance and be able to outmaneuver or take advantage of, um, you know, areas in the envelope of, of other aircraft so that we can we can get into their uh, their kill zone and get a shot off. So we have this discerning um, sort of calibrated sight picture or, or we're used to seeing turn radius, turn radii, turn radiuses <laughs> and, and <laughs> angles and um, just the physics of, of flight as we would expect uh, something that requires you know, our, our normal fuel and um, our normal propulsion and our normal flight control surfaces, whether it's ailerons or stabs or um, rudders, you know, we're used to that. Mm-hmm. And so this didn't, this didn't have any of those. It was smooth. It was, um, it didn't have a smoke trail. It didn't have any visible means of propulsion. And so um, we couldn't really figure out how it was moving both moving quickly and then also seeming to stop and hover or reverse and and um, yeah because you it have a, a, and you, sorry go ahead Dave no you, I was gonna say you're, it's essentially moving like something that is massless in the air right it's it's able to like make right angle turns at speed and and uh, like instantaneous you know almost like, like like if you were pointing a laser pointer you could make those kind of maneuvers. But nothing with nothing with mass that was affected by inertia should be able to do what it was doing, right? Yeah, it, it wasn't. I, I mean, I don't want to speculate about about the the mass. Uh, yeah. Oh, it, know, yeah. But but I. Saying, it's it behaving, wasn't adhering. Yeah. Yeah, those, it wasn't adhering rules. to our laws of physics. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and a, it was something that showed up on radar, so it wasn't just. Right, and so that's why we ended up there in the first place. And I think, um, you know, and, and I didn't, so this is part of the frustration that we had as air crew and that I have today is that, you know, in, in the in the time since, I have become aware of the fact that they were tracking this anomaly or this anomalous behavior on the radar uh, for days, if, if not a few weeks prior, and that and I get that they thought that it was just their system glitching, and they actually turned it off and turned it back on, <laughs> as you do when a computer is, you know, sort of mm. not cooperating or not behaving the way you expect it to. And so we were the first flight airborne when they were actively getting these strange hits, things that were strange altitudes and airspeeds and, and jumping around in these strange ways. And so. You know, they vectored us. They, they. It was a target of opportunity. They said, "Hey, we, we've got aircraft airborne. Let's go see if there's something there." There, I think they were as surprised as we were that there was something there. Because this there. is my this is. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My question, you are seeing it both with your own eyes and through instrumentation on your plane, correct? Or is it? So our my my aircraft didn't get it on, on our aircraft radar, but the larger... Um, USS Princeton radar was what that's what the air traffic controller was using to vector us. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah. the, and- the trend that they had been seeing. And so, you know, in hindsight, they should have said to the air crew, hey, we're getting these strange hits. They don't make sense. If and when we have a hit when there's an aircraft airborne, because we're not t- out there 24 7. And this is something that. You know, I think a lot of the folks um, who are debating whether there is a conspiracy or this, you know, that there needs to be disclosure, that there's all this data and information out there, there's this assumption that there's this 24-7 data collection stream, but there isn't. So in, in our case, you know, what I wish the controllers would have done is said, hey, we're, we're getting these strange hits if and when we have aircraft airborne when we're getting a hit, we're going to vector you. And that would have allowed us as operators to have the conversation with each other about what other tools do we want to have? What, you know, do we want to bring binoculars? Do we want to bring, I don't know if we had GoPros at the time, but, you know, do we want to bring a handheld SLR camera? Uh, Do we want to bring, um, any uh, night vision goggles, even though it was daytime, you know, maybe we would just sort of have a, a UFO hunting kit yeah. <laughs> and a bag ready to go. And then you have those, uh, re- you know, check that the batteries are are fresh and, and charged mm-hmm. and make sure that everything's set. But in the moment, we were so surprised that our flight didn't even turn on our tapes to record. Yeah. Because again, we yeah. were in an administrative phase of flight, we always turn our tapes on when we're in tactical mode. Right, right. But we were so shocked. We were so um, sort of overwhelmed in the moment that ha- just thinking through it and making it part of that checklist and procedure that we would have practiced could have brought back more information and more data, which is what everybody craves. Mm-hmm. Everybody th- wants to know. Do you think the fact that there was that you guys weren't given any information ahead of time and that like none of the none of the flight crews, like none of the, like on on board before going out that you weren't given that information. Do you think that's just like um, a result of the reluctance to think the term UFO or to say it out loud or to. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if it isn't if it isn't possible you were sent up there to perhaps interact with it. But I don't know what the protocol is in terms of scheduling something like that or not wanting something on the record that you're I don't know. I, I mean, is it possible that that you were that that was the purpose of why you were sent up, maybe under different. That sounds too conspira- cons- I, conspiratorial. Yeah, to me. I'm just wondering. If, I'm just wondering if it's, if it's just in like a uh, a reaction to stigma or a reaction that you that there's just a reluctance to address the notion of a UFO at that point, like in the in the in the radar room or in the command center, to not you know you don't want to say we're sending you out to look after a UFO because. Because it seemed like, I mean, from what I've heard from like, um, I guess, Kevin Day, who was the radar operator, 
they, they, they had a pretty clear sense that what they were seeing wasn't normal. Mm -hmm. So do you think there was just the stigma? Yeah, I can't, I can't speculate. I can't, I can't speak to uh, what they were thinking. If we're talking about the chain of command yeah. all the way up to the, to yeah. the Admiral who was in charge of that carrier strike group. Um, I was a Lieutenant JG. I was only in, in the squadron for three months and I was, you know, brand new to this carrier operations uh, scene. And so, you know, again, I, I, I can't speak to what they were thinking or, or yeah. why they did or didn't act in the time. Yeah. Now, yeah. 19 years later, I can be frustrated that there wasn't more done in the moment that we didn't call a training timeout on all of our pre-deployment practice and, and, and sort of the sense of urgency we had to, to check all these boxes to become qualified and, and certified in order to deploy, I wish that they had had the balls to say, hey, let's let's do a training timeout. There's something here, right, and we yeah. have all these great assets uh, and operators. Let's, you know, launch launch some more and see if we can't get some some better footage, get some better. Well, um, then, well maybe we should jump ahead 19 years. Uh, because I mean, because as I understand it, I'm from you know talking to you and hearing you interview, that that this incident was obviously a big event, but not one that preoccupied your life in the interim. But that's changed in recent years. Like it seems like it's even changing, even since meeting you at at the you know at the Soul Foundation, and then uh, getting getting the chance to hang out with you at the. Um, what hey, let me go the the in, in, inquiry into anomalous experiences and phenomenon uh, conference that we were just at in New York, that right. that it's now having um, an impact on your life in a way that I, maybe you, you wouldn't have anticipated over the past nineteen years. Like, how is it changing so, for you now? The experience. So when it happened in two thousand and four, it was a blip on my radar. It it yeah. was something that happened. It was exciting in the moment. You know, folks talked about it for a few days, and then we were, not that it was a, a more real issue, but it was a more urgent uh, sense of, of, hey, we're going to the Gulf. Yeah. We're going into, into harm's way. We're not really yeah. sure if that was a threat. <laughs> we're not really sure what that was. Um, but so there are things that we need to do in order to prepare for this upcoming deployment. And, you know, I went on with, with my career. I went on with my life. And it wasn't until you know several years later that I got called to provide a more thorough debrief and and more uh, answer more technical questions about it. And I said, well, "What took you guys so long?" <laughs> and I was annoyed with that. But then I thought, well, you know, now that I've done this debrief and I've um, sort of given them the download, um, that's it. You know, I I won't have to. Who requested that, by the way? Or are you allowed to? I mean, who to whom were you yeah. reporting this data? Um, so folks in the Office of Naval Intelligence. So this mm -hmm. would have been the first iteration of um, like ATIP okay. before it became UAP Task Force, before it became yeah. Got it. So it Arrow, be, yeah. you know, whatever whatever it is now. So so this would have been like Lou Elizondo would have been involved in this debrief or? Um, not the not the initial one, but eventually, you know, I met Lou in a, in a skiff in the Pentagon uh, talking about this. But so each time I was asked to come back, you know, I, I was sort of like, oh, man, okay, you, you have more questions or you, you know, did you not write down 
what I what I talked about last year. Um, mm-hmm. And and in some cases there was leadership turnover, so there was uh, a new um, director. You know, there, an administration change, and, and new folks were appointed. Um, and sometimes they just want to hear it directly mm-hmm. and not read it in a report. You know, they, this whole idea of a, a credible witness. You know, looking us in the eye and, and hearing us uh, retell it, which, you know, that was, that was kind of annoying. I felt like yeah. you've got my bio, you've got the the narrative that I told you. Um, sounds you know. sounds like being on a customer service call, <laughs> where they shift <laughs> you to a different operator and you have to say the same thing exactly. over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Very frustrating. And throughout this time, you know, I'm having uh, my family. You know, I, I was pregnant or nursing. Uh, Three different children. Yeah, back to know, being so, selfish. So, uh, clearly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, the, the people say, "Oh, you, you know, you, had, you went, you were asked to come to the Pentagon, or you were asked to go to the Hill and and talk to Congress." It, it that sounds like a romanticized idea. You know, again, this sort of Hollywood I, image. Um, but the reality is that you have to fight through DC traffic, and <laughs> half the time I was in a maternity is- uniform. Uh, you know, I'm pumping in the car in the parking lot, you know, and, and then like having to go through security, which is like going through airport TSA, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not glamorous. It's not, (laughs) no. and then, and then you get there, you finally get into the room and they say, okay, tell us what you saw that day. Right. And I'm like, really? I I just told you. Yeah. Tell me something cool. (laughs) Last time time I was here. Uh, I I literally told you so. Um, uh, so, you know, fast forward to to twenty twenty one when sixty minutes called and said, do, you know, do you want to come on? Well, I, I think the way they stated it was that um, QAnon has convinced Marco Rubio to include UFO legislation or UFO language in the COVID relief. <laughs> legislation. Yeah. Yeah, Do you want to come on national television and talk about it? And I thought, you know what? That's a loaded question. Yeah. yeah. I, and yeah, I never heard that before that QAnon had any involvement in that. I don't know. It, you know, but, it, yeah. this is all wires getting crossed, yeah. but um, I know sometimes news organizations will embellish when they're trying to get an interview. Well, I was, ac- I was actually really impressed with 60 minutes. You know, they're reputable, um, you know, I used to watch them with my grandparents when I was oh, little. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. They do their, their fact-finding. Safer and Dan Rather. Oh, God. Yeah, they're, they're fact-checking and they're, um, you know, I I've talked, I yeah. hung up. Yeah. I told the producer, I said, hang on a second. And I called David Fravor and I said, um, 60 Minutes just called. <laughs> he said, yeah, they called me. I was just going to call you. I said, what do you think? You know, is it? I've been saying no to so many interview requests. And he said, well, you know, you, 60 Minutes is a broad audience and um, they do, a, you know, a, a fair and balanced job of presenting it. And so you could do one and be done, which <laughs> was a really naive um, way of thinking about it. So it's still a huge uh, step, though. It's a huge step for you to come forward publicly like that at that scale. That was, did you have to think about it for a minute or were you like, all right, I'm in? 
Well, I didn't I didn't see it as coming forward. And I don't okay. consider myself a whistleblower. You know, this was never mm -hmm. classified and this was right. never being withheld or anything like that. Um, yeah. I, I felt then, like I was just worn down <laughs> yeah, yeah. by and all your, of the And your name the had your name had been made public just before you, the, the 60 Minutes interview too, right? Right. I remember and so that's why I was name for the first getting, time. Okay. Right. That's why yeah. I was getting so many of these requests and... Um, and so I just said, okay. And I felt, you know, as a military officer who had taken an oath and was on duty when this happened, and I was in a taxpayer aircraft, that if there are curious and concerned citizens, you know, that I have this duty and obligation to respond and uh, and to share with them, you know, what I can share and um, and to relay you know, my perspective that I don't think that there's a conspiracy here that, um, you know, that folks who are working the issue, whether it's through now Arrow or at the time um, ATIP or, or UAP task force, that these are just people trying to do their job. You know, they, they slept through that traffic every day to get to the Pentagon and they, you know, have to spend 45 minutes trying to log in because their password <laughs> is yeah. reset. Um, you know, they're just they're just people. There isn't a big um, sort of monolithic government uh, that with a, a singular agenda to withhold the truth from the American people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, from that that sense, I felt it was important to to talk yeah. and, and share what I could. And as a result of that, you've kind of you've become kind of an iconic uh, figure amongst the in the in the UFO community now. And, right. and I mean, I've, I've, I've gotten to witness that in person, um, you know, the attention that, you know, everyone is excited to meet you. Everyone wants to hear your perspective on it. And, uh, and how's that, how is that, uh, and getting out and meeting the, uh, I guess, meeting the community, how is that affecting you? It's weird. Uh, you know, I, I'm an introvert. That's my personality, um, mm. by, by hardwire. And it's uh, it's 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 strange to be this this um, and I say this with humility, but this hero in this space that I don't understand. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't watch sci-fi growing up. I wasn't into UFO folklore or um, ufology. Uh, I wasn't. Yeah. I mean, uh, you would. You admitted. I, didn't, I thought. You admitted thought fighters, that you hadn't seen uh, Close Encounters. Oh, I haven't seen any of the movies. I haven't seen any of the the Hollywood stuff. I haven't. I haven't seen any of these documentaries, even the ones that they've been interviewing me for. I, I sit for them, and then I don't know where they end up. Were you? So you weren't. So even with. The Carl, your your science, the science interest at the time, and I know you you liked heroes that brought receipts to the, you know, uh, it, it was not a curiosity for you what this was um, growing up. It was just not in your. No, because uh, Leon Letterman wasn't talking about UFOs. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is talking yeah. about science. You know, to potentially a science we don't understand yet, but. Right. It was more, it yeah. was outside of your. It's let's, let's go to Fermi lab for a field trip and let's yeah, smash cool. some particles together 
and, you know, talk about the the God particle, the Higgs boson. Uh, but there, you, it, it really wasn't getting into all of this um, extraterrestrial, non-human intelligence yeah. or even, you know, the sort of from the extraterrestrial to the crypto-terrestrial to the, um, you know, what did we talk about this this weekend? We were talking about UFOs as potential afterlife tech yes. and death neurons. Yeah. I mean, that's all very fascinating to me now that I'm tuned in. But to your to your question, Dave, is that it wasn't that I was actively evading questions or or that I was hiding information. I just wasn't. No. You know, I was living my life and I was doing yeah. my. Th- I was de- I was deployed to Afghanistan, boots on ground for a year. Yeah. No, that's you know, why I was I mean. having babies. I was um, yeah. doing all of that, and then this is a recent is turn in your life. The 60 Minutes piece came out, yeah. and rather than doing one and being done, I was bombarded with requests to engage, and I spent about a year sort of saying, oh, you know, what have I, what have I done here, and how do I engage with folks who are still curious and concerned in a respectful way, and that's why I opened a Twitter account and um, said, hey, if you want to if you want to talk to me about this, here's a space where we can do it. Stop showing up at my house because that's kind of creepy. That oh, that is creepy. That's very creepy. And, um, yeah, and yeah, I, and and again, and I apologize once more. I'm sorry, <laughs> Dave. Well, so you know, yeah, you know, the cops are in Boulder. I get, ex- I get excited. Explains um, the sirens. Be gentle. Yeah. But you definitely, so, you, I mean, you picked up quite a library in New York of signed books. Yeah. So, so all that is to say that in the last few months, since being asked to, um, you know, sort of attend these, what I would have otherwise termed fringe conferences or, mm-hmm. or when people were, would come at me with, you know, abduction uh, stories, and I'm not saying that they aren't legitimate, um, but I would just say, you know, what does that have to do with my encounter? Right. I saw something. I wasn't abducted. I didn't have a sensation of being um, violated or or having the loss of control. Um, it, it is by definition unidentified. Like we just don't know what it was. It could have been China. It could have been Russia. Mm-hmm. It could have been Elon Musk messing around. Um, but, you know, I wanted to talk about putting together a systematic method of reporting and a checklist and a, a standardized template so that when people have encounters, they can get the downloaded and then we can uh, ingest it into, you know, this repository and then we can bring AI and all of our our sophisticated technology to analyze it. And then we could figure out not just what we saw, but maybe even predict when we might see something next, right? That's where I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And then people are coming at me with like um, fairy folklore and... Yeah. Uh, you know, what does this have to do with sleep paralysis? And I'm just flipping through my notes here from this New yeah. York thing. And oh, yeah, well, we, yeah, Diana, Piz, uh, Walsh Pazulka's, you know, looking at it from a, a religious phenomena angle. And yeah, right. like, the ascension narratives. Yeah. And so, you know, last year I would have said that's separate. And, and, and not to say that it's not important to look into, but it doesn't. It's not related to my experience. 
I don't understand why people are talking about me and these things in the same breath. And so a few months ago, I finally said, hey, what, you know, why are they? <laughs> What's going on here? And let me attend these uh, symposium and, and conference and um, just meetings and conversations with an open mind and and see see what's going on here. And so, yeah, I, I soul, it's almost like learning a new language. I kept having to turn to the person on my left and right and say, um, and Dave, I think you were on my left in New York. I, I was saying, what, what, what did he say? You know, I'm trying to take notes and I didn't understand the terminology they were using. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't, couldn't understand the words um, yeah. because it was and is like a, a different language for me. There, so, there, yeah, there is a whole lexicon in the UFO community, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm, you know, packing my parachute to jump down any of these rabbit holes. I'm no. not saying that I'm, you know, a true believer. I'm just saying, you know, what has captured this yeah. collective imagination? And why are we spending so much time and energy? Why are there so many podcasts <laughs> about this? Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying this from not in a judgmental way, but just in a now I'm in a, like a curious yeah. way. Like, well, what is this economy? Yeah, and it's the what is the psychology? What's the, the what's the yeah. sociology here? I definitely think one of the things that like Tom and I have been looking at since we started, you know, this amongst the the uh, the the uh, plethora, and I use that word correctly um, of podcasts. Um, I do not think it means what you think it means. I do an 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 unhealthy redolence and abundance. <laughs> a plethora is not a good thing. It's not just a numerous thing. It means it's there not, are it's so much. many, so yep. many. Um, I don't know where to start. So if I yeah. if I'm reflecting now and saying that I you know not that it was a miseducation of Alex Dietrich <laughs> over these nineteen years, but just that there was uh, you know this sort of void of of information. Now when I want to tune in. I don't know where to start. Well, that's I think because it's it drags you in so many different areas, and and it's uh, Tom and I talk about this a lot that there's you keep thinking there's an area that you can ignore when you start to engage with this. You keep thinking, well, that's nuts. I don't need to think about that. And then someone shows you some evidence, and you go, oh, or it's not nuts. Oh, damn it! Mm. And and I definitely I I would I have to say that uh, watching you in in both in, at at Seoul and in New York, the graciousness with which you meet these people who are obviously it's very important to them to have this connection with you. And there's a, I guess there's a, ref, in a sense in the community, I think the reason people are so uh, excited to meet you and want to reach out to you and connect with you is that there's a reflected seriousness that, that comes from you and it kind of gets imparted to these, to other people that you're involved with this, that somebody who is sort of unimpeachable, um, it kind of is uh, a balm to the people who have dealt with the you know, sort of ridicule for being involved with this for many decades. And I, you know, and I, I think I get a, a little bit of that myself because I, when I jumped into this as a, you know, a dumb, dumb TV comedian, even, even my, even that, you know, made people feel a little less, you know, isolated, but for for someone like you to be involved with this, I think is very, very um, healing for a lot of people. If that makes sense to you, it does. 
Um, thank you for framing that um, in that way for me. And I, and I have tried to approach all of these folks who want to have contact, who just, you know, it, it's it's so fascinating to me that just, you know, liking something on the social media or, you know, following someone back, then they just gush and they're like, oh, man, this is, mm-hmm. this feels so good to be seen by by Alex and um and and people who will send me these stories in the DMs where they say, hey, you don't seem crazy, and I don't think I'm crazy. I had this experience. I saw a UFO or I felt like I was abducted or, you know, whatever it was, this encounter. And I haven't been able to share it with my family. I haven't been able to talk about it at work. Or I'm a part of my religious organization, you know, my, my faith group, my church, my, uh, my mosque, my, my temple, you know, I, I would never talk about this in a social setting, in a professional setting. But so here I'm going to give it to you, Alex. And then, you know, now the weight's not all on my shoulders. I'm, I'm sharing it with you to, to, to carry this with me, to hold this for me. And then I go, Oh, Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, thank you for trusting me with your with your story. You know, I don't know what to do with this. I don't, <laughs> right, know what right. this. don't um, have answers, yeah. You know, and, and getting back to this idea that we need to have we need to have a central repository. We need yeah. to have a place where people can call in or or you know, go to the app and and say, here's my experience. Um, I know it's you know. Let's not talk about whether it sounds crazy or not. Like, let's just get the data and the information. And, um, you know, I'm an advisor to the Enigma Labs. And so you can download mm-hmm. their app, and not just tell them um, what you saw or experienced, but also you can, you know, just like any other app, it'll ask you, do you want push notifications? Do you want to get mm-hmm. alerts? But for them, it's, you know, if somebody's in your neighborhood or in your area and reports, a, an encounter, you'll get an alert. So you mm. can actually that's cool. go outside yeah. and, and look around and see, if, you know, and then we can start to triangulate and actually put more and more evidence together. So um, the, the story that I ended with at the New York conference was this article I'd read about the neurologist who had somebody come to him with symptoms, uh, I don't know what the symptoms you would go to a neurologist for, maybe headaches or tremors mm-hmm. or things like that. And um, the neurologist, as any good physician would do, you know, did a thorough intake and asked uh, all these questions and said, when did these symptoms start? And the patient, you know, sort of sheepishly said, well, um, they started, you know, after my abduction. And rather than snickering and rather than saying, that's nuts, you know, that's crazy, the doctor didn't skip a beat and said, you know, well, when when was that? You know, let me get the timeline. And so the doctor treated this individual with respect and dignity and and saw this, you know, common humanity and then proceeded to treat him as he would any other patient and did scans and and gave him relief. I don't know if it was medication or or what sort of therapies they did, but this patient went off and went back to their 
their subreddit or (laughs) their online group and said, hey, I found a doc who didn't call me crazy and actually was able to alleviate some of my suffering here. And so this neurologist unwittingly became the doc to these abductee experiencers. And, you know, in this article and and in this research that that he published was, he said, look, I'm not saying that these people have been abducted. But I have here a cohort of individuals who who feel like they've been abducted, who've had this similar sensation, similar experience, and I've got hard data here. I've got their MRI brain scans. And there's a trend here. They all are different from normal brain scans, but similar to each other. Mm-hmm. And so again, like I'm not saying they've been abducted, but something's something's going on here. So so if they were abducted, then maybe that caused this sort of brain damage or this physio- physiology, or maybe it's this physiology that they were born with or that they developed that is causing them this sensation. And I thought, you know, why aren't more doctors, why aren't more professionals, academics and uh, first responders and, you know, just why aren't all of us uh, sort of getting over our our Hollywood conditioning, you know, this this mm-hmm. stigma um, that we've been conditioned to to laugh and snicker and dismiss people who say, I'm feeling something different. I've experienced, I've seen something different. And instead, why don't we just pivot and help investigate it. We have mm-hmm. so much hardware. We have so many sensors from radar and FLIR, RF and, and optical sensors to MRIs, <laughs> right? We have all of these tools at our disposal. Why don't we bring them to bear to collect more information in a systematic way mm-hmm. and get some answers? Yeah. Because that's what everybody is craving. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and it treats the mystery. And I think one of the great things about the way you approach this is, you know, uh, obviously being such a credible witness, a trained, a person trained to observe, but also the fact that you're not willing to speculate on everything under the rainbow. I think there is a, there is a tendency for people to try to launch in and try to speculate and, and explain what is inexplicable at the moment. And yet, uh, to your credit, with things like Americans for Safe Aerospace and Enigma, you know, being open to try to gather the information yeah. to broaden, problem solve. Yeah, to broaden our base of data so that the answers will reveal themselves, as opposed to people launching in and trying to, trying to, um, yeah, pull pull things from everywhere. Where you start to go, like, well, we don't we don't know that entirely. We just don't we don't know. And I think the mystery deserves some respect. Um, because it is, it, it is so strange and other and, and, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, a a credit to you for that. And, um, the, you know, the, I think dignifying people's experiences is, is important. My interest in this started from, you know, an incredibly dear friend who I trusted implicitly having an, having a story and ex- and sharing an experience that was so outside of my realm of understanding that it required me to just, that was my personal ontological shock was like, how do I reconcile this person whom I, who I trust 
and their experience and trying to just sort of open the aperture to allow it in. And maybe that makes my world bigger or more confusing, but I couldn't dismiss it because, um, and we have sort of tried when in with pe people that we know, like, or, or have you know, had experiences, it gives us at least a base, you know, a sort of trust base where we feel like we can share that, um, you know, with this podcast, for example, just like, because yeah, I think, um, people's, people's experiences are real. They're, they're valid, whatever they end up actually being is, uh, we don't necessarily know, but data is important. Gathering it is super mm. important. Yeah. And, and empathy and just the simple act of listening, yeah. um, is certainly, um, it's, it's a gift to the people that, that, that you extend it to. And it's, uh, and it, it, it is an important action in and of itself. Just listening, uh, I think, is um, incredibly healing for a, a great many people who are uh, – there's been a tremendous amount of suffering caused by the stigma. Um, mm -hmm. and, I think, uh, and I think you're doing a, 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 a great service, and, and just listening to people is really quite laudable. So – and I guess with that, with that, I guess we should just thank you so much for for extending this time to us. It's been so great getting to hang out with you a bit recently, and hopefully we'll get to do that again. And uh, and I um, hope so. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So, Tom, anything you want to wrap up with? Well, no. I mean, yeah. I think we. Well, I, I I just think I would love to continue this kind. Of, you know, hopefully we can keep sort of checking in and and having this conversation. And and um, you know, thank you for sharing this. Thanks for your service. I would ask you one thing like Mike, cause I just, I, I love, I love your journey. I love that you sort of, you know, uh, what advice, I mean, for girls who are want to be aviators, do you feel like, I mean, is it, is the challenge more internal of like, this is not something that I, the girls do. I, I, what, what do you tell them in terms of the obstacles? Are they more external? Or are they more internal or like what, what advice do you give them if they're contemplating, becoming a pilot or, or, or see it in this sort of old light. Um, I don't know. What's, what's your advice to, to girls who are thinking about this? Yeah. Well, I would say just go get some hours so you can go to any airfield and, um, you know, work through ground school and work towards a private pilot's license. Uh, I think that people feel like there's a big barrier to entry there. And that's why, you know, thank you for mentioning the the two organizations that I'm really passionate about, um, the Legacy Flight Academy, which uh, the legacy refers to the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. And so that's uh, an organization that supports and provides opportunities for uh, minority and underserved students to have those, um, you know, th those exposure flights to just get up and, and feel yeah. the joy mm -hmm. and, and to say, oh, yeah. Um, you know, this, I'm feeling funny in my stomach or you're like, yeah, this is, uh, this, I could see myself doing this. Um, if not for a career, then maybe just for a hobby. Um, you know, lots of, uh, I have three kids now and, and folks are talking about, you know, the sports and the extracurriculars. And I always remind people that flying in aviation is an extracurricular. And there are organizations like the um, EAA Young Eagles and the Civil Air Patrol that are oh, cool. uh, almost like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts for aviation, you know, that that can get kids involved. There are scholarships. Um, the Wings for Val is uh, honoring um, a, a dear friend who um, passed in a, a training exercise uh, on, a, on a training mission. Um, 
but her scholarship is nested under the Women in Aviation International uh, uh, initiative, and, and this is a, an organization, and there's an annual conference, and there are lots of these other groups that will piggyback uh, on the WAI um, train because they take care of all the logistics, but whirly girls for folks who are interested in, in um, rotary wing or helicopters, um, Wings for Val provides uh, scholarships for, for uh, girls and young women who are interested in, in pursuing flight. So um, to your original question, you know, just just check it out. <laughs> you know, go, go, go to an airport and um, find yourself a mentor or, or um, get involved in one of these groups and organizations. And um, I did, uh, I volunteered for Girl Scout Day at the Udvar Hazy, which is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum out by... Oh, cool. Dulles, they have one on the mall right there um, by the Capitol, but then the big one that has the shuttle and the, you know, the Wright brothers, um, you know, all the planes on sticks, I call them, you know, static displays. Um, and this was, they said, hey, you know, throw on a flight suit and come and make paper airplanes with these Girl Scouts. And I did, and it was, it was amazing. All these girls running around the museum, right. get a little choked up. <laughs> but then they gave me... Um, a case of Girl Scout cookies <laughs> to go home with. And I was bonus. Like, yes. Yeah. Total bonus. Um, so there's there's lots of of ways to get involved, mm -hmm. and I would say if if there's even a uh, an inkling of interest that that you should um, run it to ground and see if it's something that you'd be, re be really interested in. There's some people who go out on that first flight and they go, "Ugh, <laughs> yeah. this is yeah. not for me." You know, just um. It's kind of like the first time I explored um, scuba diving. I was like, "No, this is not. Right. <laughs> this is not yeah. my hobby." Um, so just give it a chance. Give it Have a your try. kids been able to to fly with you, or has that been you a still part fly? of your life since you've had kids? So they're they're still little. Um, they're oh, little okay. kids. They're they're just turned five, just turned seven, and one's just going to turn nine. Um, so we fly a lot commercially, but um, I don't. Mm. I don't take. I don't. I don't trust them. <laughs> like little monkeys. Give yeah. them a you know, little, yes. Give you, them a little. Do you, yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you still fly yeah. yourself ever? I, I do. Yes. I maintain um, my, my, um, I actually have a commercial license through the FAA, um, but the, it, there's two sides of it. One is maintaining the license and then the other is maintaining your flight physical. Um, your, your, you have to go through these um, FAA physicals every year. And I was diagnosed with breast cancer um, in 2023, so last year, but like oh. a year and a half ago, and um, had a full bilateral mastectomy. And then, you know, a few surgeries to kind of clean things up and, and take care of all that. So all that is to say um, that I haven't been flying in the immediate uh, just because I'm, I'm. That's a lot to be dealing with. Issue. Yeah, but it's a yeah. new story. So they caught it early. The mastectomy, the surgery, uh, caught the that's cancer, great. and, and I share it openly because I mm -hmm. want people to go get checked. Go yes, get your yeah, that's so important. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, we're go delighted, delighted that you're that you're healthy and fine. Yes. And that they got yeah. it early. Yeah. Go get your moles checked at dermatology. Go, yeah. go get all the scans. So and that's a lot to be so dealing with when you're also dealing with becoming a celebrity. And in the UFO icon. Yeah. Yeah. No, people were really impatient. They're like, why aren't you getting back to me about my podcast? And I was like, well, I'm <laughs> sort of yeah. occupied right now. Got a yeah, little bit on I'm my plate with three young surgery. children and everything else. Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, so, 
you know, you you have to prioritize and um, yeah. And I tell my students, I say, there's you can have it all, you just can't have it all at once. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for those young girls and women who are interested in flying, you know, it's it's something that will always be there if you want to get started, and you can always go back to it. And um, I like having it as a as sort of a lifelong passion. Yeah, I, you know, I once I once was on a flight with seated next to Buzz Aldrin. And, yes, and we we had a lot we had a long conversation. It was actually the day after Neil Armstrong died that we were on this flight. Uh-huh. But the yeah. one thing that I'm, I was surprised by is that Buzz never stopped looking out the window yes. on the entire flight. He seemed really still excited about being in the air. And after you know, and this is a guy who went to the moon, and he still just enjoyed looking out that window on a commercial jet. It was, I found that very surprising. I'm always and forever a hashtag window seat gal. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I always have the window seat. I always liked the window until my prostate got the better of me. <laughs> now I'm an yeah. island. Well, I can climb over sit next to Dave. Yeah. 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 If I have to go, I, you know, just climb through, but I got yeah. out the window. Yeah. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much. This is great. And uh, yes. thanks for being an inspiration to our next uh, our next generation of aviators and um, yeah or keep, the old term know, aviatrixes aviatrix. Um, <laughs> I'm up to my ears in my Amelia Earhart research actually because I'm she's gonna <laughs> she's she is no primary. Yeah, whatever whatever happened to her? She just I don't know. She's not she's not done much lately. That's all I know. Well, I yeah. Have, yeah, I have some theories. She's no, but I just everybody. She's uh, <laughs> yeah. She's pretty pretty interesting, but um I. This is just great to meet you, and and uh, we'll hopefully we'll continue this conversation. And um, yeah, thanks for being here. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for right. um, having fun. I like uh, to say that it's you know lighthearted, uh, but it's also a serious topic. So I thought you struck a good balance. I okay. appreciate that. We that's try. our that's our gift to you we and try. the world. It's Dave's gift. Yeah, I just <laughs> tag along. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Over. <laughs> Open out here. Hope to see you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.